We'll turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 10. This uh, passage of Scripture makes reference to a portion of the Law of Moses. And so, uh, as you stand, uh, I will, I'll read uh, that portion from Deuteronomy and then from Mark 10, beginning in verse 1. So let's uh, express our reverence uh, for Scripture as we've confessed it to be God's Word. And Father, may you be pleased to grant your blessing to the reading and proclamation of uh, this passage of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. Moses wrote, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And now from Mark. And he left there and went to the region of Judah and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the, the disciples, ask him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may take your seats. It was hardness of heart. Ken and Marilyn had been married uh, 10 years when it happened. Uh, she was a nurse, and she had put him through uh, seminary. And he was a driven uh, man, a high achiever, and had become a pastor. One evening, a 1,000 miles from home, furthering his education, he entered a grocery store. And there was a very attractive woman in the line ahead of him. He struck up a conversation with her and began to speak to her in an inappropriate way. He was shocked when she pulled out a badge and informed him that she was uh, part of a sting operation and that he was under arrest. He was taken to the station, charged with the crime of solicitation, and given a court date. Ken explained and the authorities confirmed that this was his first offense, but that did not change the fact that he had to return to that city and stand before a judge. 
And this meant that what Cannon hoped would stay in the city of Charlotte uh, was not going to stay there. He would have to explain to his wife, Marilyn, why he had to return. He went home and confessed his sin to his wife, to his elders, and to his presbytery. And they instructed him, and he readily agreed to counseling. Um, And uh, he also admitted he was addicted toward pornography. Marilyn's response uh, was to insist on a divorce. Despite the fact that they were both Christians, despite the fact that Ken had forgiven Marilyn when she committed adultery in the first year of their marriage, and despite the pleading of uh, the elders, she was determined to have a divorce. It was, as best as I can tell, a matter of the heart. She had hardened her heart against Ken. Almost certainly her heart had grown hard over a long period of time. And the folly at the grocery store was simply the last step in that hardening. When Jesus is asked about divorce, he focuses on God's original purpose for marriage. Divorce was not a part of God's good design. Now, today's sermon is about marriage and divorce. And before any of you pull out your phone uh, and uh, leave this uh, room while still in your seats, let me say a couple of things to you. Those of you who are here who aren't uh, married, and that includes uh, all of, all of uh, uh, you who aren't uh, married, you may need this teaching. And so I urge you to listen closely. There are some of you who here have no intention of uh, being married, no desire to be married, and I hope that you will uh, listen because some of you have friends who are married, and this uh, sermon will enable you to be able to counsel uh, them uh, should occasion arise. And if you can't uh, find yourself in either of those, then please pray for everybody else who's listening this morning. Jesus is pressing the demands of discipleship on his followers as he heads uh, to Jerusalem to die. That's true in this passage. Uh, We could say in some what he says is that because God's purpose for marriage has not changed, his disciples must live out God's pattern. They must honor God's design and they must rely on Jesus if they're going to live out that pattern. Now, the words of Jesus in this passage have troubled many people, especially people who've been through a divorce and have been remarried. And we need to be clear about what Jesus has not said before we can clearly hear what he has said. We need to note carefully the context in which the question is posed to Jesus. Jesus stands before a hostile audience, the Pharisees. They're looking for the opportunity to trap him in his words They hope that he'll make a moral pronouncement that will offend and provoke King Herod, just as John did. And they hope that the same fate befalls him, arrests uh, followed by execution. Their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, wasn't sincere. They aren't really interested in what the 
the scriptures say they don't want Jesus' opinion about that. It's a trap. Jesus is not asked here, are there any conditions under which a divorce might be necessary? Although there was a debate about divorce in Jesus' day. Jesus is not giving pastoral advice to someone who's in a troubled marriage. He's not speaking uh, to people who've experienced the devastation of divorce. And he doesn't address the many, many questions that have been raised about how the church uh, should uh, treat divorced people. No, Jesus is speaking of the central purpose of marriage and the great threat to that purpose, hardness of heart. A follower of Christ must honor God's design for marriage. You can't take God's design as anything else than his personal intention for your life. Now, the Pharisees have set the trap with this question. You need to notice what it says and it doesn't say. What does the law allow me to do? That's what they're really asking. Or to, uh, to put it a little bit more crassly, um, what does the law allow me to get away with? And the Jews of Jesus' day took it for granted that uh, a man had a right to divorce his uh, wife, and the only debate that was going on was what grounds made that uh, legal. But you get a sense of where the discussion is if you um, uh, were to look at Malachi in one of the translations that was widely used in the synagogue in that day. You see, Malachi uh, writes, God hates divorce. But in the Aramaic paraphrase, it reads, if you hate her, divorce her. The paraphrase just turns this on its head, and it reflects really the attitude of the day. Jesus responds to their question by asking, what does Moses uh, command you? And they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. You see, they're framing the question in terms of their rights, about a husband's right to divorce. And they're unconcerned about the wife, about her needs, about the impact on their uh, children, whether she can object or not. The hardness of their hearts is uncovered by the very way they ask this question. And Jesus says, this law given by Moses was a concession. It's not an endorsement of divorce. It's a concession to the reality that marriages fail. And if you uh, go back and read Deuteronomy 24, you'll see that it seeks to limit uh, the fallout of divorce, both freeing a woman to remarry, lest she be forced into prostitution, and protecting her from being reclaimed uh, by her ex-husband, and thus possibly breaking up the new marriage. And further, it seeks uh, to close the door to any kind of wife swapping that uh, might take place. In Israel, divorce was uh, common, it was frequent, and it was often done for trivial reasons. Those words, if anything indecent is found in him, was understood by the majority of rabbis to mean, well, if she put too much salt in the lentil stew, or she didn't uh, keep the house uh, to your satisfaction. 
And it's good for us to also be mindful that Mark's Gospel's written to the Christians in Rome, and under the direction of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, what's included in the Gospel is here, especially for them as the uh, first audience. Roman citizens were even more lax than Jews. Women frequently divorced their husbands, and upper-class women chronicled their lives not by uh, the years on the calendar, but by which husband they were living with at the time. And you know, our day really isn't all that much better. In 1969, as uh, the governor of California, Ronald Reagan signed into law no-fault divorce. And within five years, the number of marriages that ended in divorce for the very first time exceeded the number that ended because of death. And the law was based on three fundamental assumptions that were widely held. The first was that a woman could afford to be a mother without also being a wife. That a woman could be financially independent of her husband with children. That the loss of income wouldn't really make that much difference. The second assumption was that the family disruption a divorce uh, would cause would do no lasting harm uh, to the children. And the third thing was that it was nice to increase the diversity of households in America. Single parent households will just make America a richer place. Well, 50 years later, the results of this social experiment are in, and all of them are false. The children who live in a single-parent family are six times more likely uh, to live in poverty than a family and the children who have both parents. In fact, 75% of women who are divorced apply for welfare at some point uh, in that uh, time. It would be fair to say that divorce is uh, the surest path to poverty. Uh, for a woman with children. And children in single-parent families are two to three times more likely to have enduring emotional and behavioral uh, problems. But, you know, statistics don't tell the whole story. Uh, heart, the hardness of heart that leads to a, a divorce uh, is a hardness that doesn't want to think about the cost involved. It just doesn't want to consider it. It just is looking probably mostly for relief. And married uh, uh, couples are a bit like plants that grow together, you know, over time. And, and if you separate uh, plants, you know, they've become intertwined. It's difficult to do that neatly and completely. And even if you can do it, you know, uh, there's something misshapen about the plant, right? Because they've grown up next uh, to each other. And a divorced person might ask, what do I do with uh, 20 years of pictures I have in a photo album? What do I do with the last 20 years of my life? The union created by marriage is deep, and it is always painful to separate. You will not be the same person after a divorce. But there's another cost to children that goes beyond the standard of living, even if their standard of living doesn't change at all. Um, Lee Goldberg uh, uh, wrote a, 
a column in his uh, college newspaper around this topic about whether uh, adolescents and young children of divorce are any different than those who come from intact families. And in part what he writes is this. We are the kids who are so adult as our parents uh, divorced because we uh, readjusted so quickly uh, to their being suddenly single. We're looked on by our elders with admiration and awe, yet if you wipe away the surface gloss, you will find we are actually victims, casualty of our parents' need for us to grow up fast. And that which we are praised for is in fact our biggest problem. When we were supposed to be thinking about the big dance, or playing baseball, or getting new handlebars on our bikes, we were actually wondering whether or not mom would receive her child support check, or whether our parents' date uh, that night would be a guest for breakfast in the morning, or whether our little sister would even remember a time when both parents lived in the house. Our parents were always so proud of our capacity to make it on our own, to be adult. And as a result, we found it more attractive to spend time at school than to come home. Because coming home meant confronting dad's new girlfriend or mom's unpaid bills or playing parent to our younger siblings. Many of our younger brothers and sisters see us more as their parents than their parents do. And uh, as our parents uh, gave themselves to their careers and re-entered the dating scene, we uh, coped uh, by forming little mini families with the older kids parenting uh, their younger siblings. And it was common for single mothers to joke about how their eldest son played doting uh, father, checking out her dates and offering sage uh, advice. So for parents to find that their younger kids wouldn't accept candy from them without looking to the older sibling for uh, permission. Our parents expected us to understand their problems and their frustrations, to grasp the complexities of divorce proceedings and the emotional hazards they faced by dating again. More than understanding, they even solicited our advice and guidance in these matters. Our parents pressured us into becoming, at times, even participants by taking sides in the divorce. Divorce didn't just split up our parents. It stole our childhood. The best gift a married couple can give to their children is a good marriage. It's of far greater worth than all the material benefits you could give a child. An excellent education, a head start uh, in uh, life, uh, a leg up on a good uh, career. It is the greatest gift you can possibly give. Now the covenant of marriage can be broken, the scriptures teach, by death by adultery, or by desertion in its varied forms. But when it's broken by anything other than death, it always involves much sin, and it comes under the judgment of God. Divorce does not enjoy God's smile in the same way that marriage does. It's lawful, 
but it's not the creator's intent. And it ought not to be viewed as an option. A disciple doesn't enter into marriage thinking, well, if it doesn't work out, I can always end this thing with divorce. No, it ought to be uh, viewed instead like chemotherapy, a remedy for a destructive relationship and a cancerous sin. But divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is no sin, there's no failure, and there's no lapse that cannot be forgiven. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And there, we should not treat divorced people as if they've committed the unpardonable sin. Now, I want to just say as an aside, if you're in a difficult or troubled marriage, then you should get help. You shouldn't uh, isolate. You should seek out help. You should seek out help from your pastor, uh, from your elders, and maybe you need a counselor to actually help you navigate all the issues and challenges in your relationship. Now, the Pharisees want divorce to be accessible for men. And so they misread the scripture. They missed God's original enduring purpose uh, for scripture. They didn't understand that Deuteronomy 24 was a provision in the law that accounted for the hardness of men's hearts. And so if you enter into marriage as a Christian, it should be with the intent that your marriage will end in a funeral and not in a courtroom. Now, if that just seems too confining for you, then you either need to embrace a life of celibacy, a life of singleness, or you need to examine your thinking because it's been shaped by the world. You see, the spirit of our times says that our desires must be acted upon. They must be given priority. If we're going to live fulfilled lives, we have to do what we want. And underneath that is the assumption that if we desire it, it must be good. Now, the disciples... uh, enter the house after this conversation, and they ask Jesus to explain a little bit more about uh, what he meant. And he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, it would be as if Jesus said, if anyone sells his car and buys another, he's guilty of theft. Now, Jesus, on his part, makes this statement to press home the permanence of marriage. And again, you need to understand the background of why he is speaking uh, this way. He is not summarizing all of the teaching in the Bible about marriage and divorce. But see, according to rabbinic law, a man could commit adultery against another man's wife by seducing her, and a wife could commit adultery against her husband by infidelity, But a husband could not be said to commit adultery against his wife. A husband could not commit adultery against his wife. If you uh, remember the account of Jesus uh, with the woman caught in adultery, that's what's going on there. That's why only the woman is uh, brought uh, out. You see, this double standard couldn't be plainer. 
And Jesus is addressing it uh, by uh, saying from Genesis, from the beginning God made them male and female. Jesus is making husbands and wives equals. And the disciples are shocked. This is radical. And it has great implications for disciples who live in the crucible of marriage. As disciples, we must rely on Jesus to live out God's pattern for marriage. Now, this pattern is one man and one woman, period. Not two men, not two women, or not some uh, group of several men and women in some common, common uh, nation. And it's not a man and a woman living uh, together without the benefit of the covenant of marriage. No, it is a man and a woman uh, leaving their parents, being united in that covenant of marriage, and in a mysterious way, becoming one. And this is so good. It's good to grow up and take responsibility for your life by leaving home and establishing your own family. To share life with one other person in a lifetime commitment where that commitment's not threatened by vacillating uh, desires, uh, by the tension and differences that uh, come, um, by the trials of uh, life, whether it is a change in uh, your finances or your health. It's so very good that it would be hard for me to find words to describe it. But we have to guard against another factor in our time, and that is there are just a lot of romantic and unrealistic expectations about uh, marriage. It's one of the reasons people spend tens of thousands of dollars on a wedding. It's one of the reasons people have elaborate proposals uh, today. It's because of the romance around uh, marriage. David uh, Garland, writing about this uh, passage in his commentary, Uh, recounts an experience uh, from his own uh, marriage. Um, His wife decided one winter to make a quilt. They had a a bare wall in their kitchen. It just screamed to have something on it. And she decided that she'd make a quilt even though she'd never uh, made one. She thought, how hard can it be to cut out uh, some cloth and sew it together? And so she took her uh, children's colored pencils and sketched out a design that was built off the pattern of an area rug under uh, the table, and uh, she got underway. And it wasn't long before she realized that, well, the quilt was going to depart from the original plan. You see, she measured some of the centerpieces, and as she added more and more uh, pieces on, well, those mistakes just got bigger as the quilt Uh, grew, and she had to patch in extra pieces, and she had to change uh, the design to fit the mistakes. And the mistakes and the mid-course corrections became a part of the design. Eight months later, uh, which was a lot more work than was originally anticipated, the quilt was finished and hanging on the wall. But it only remotely resembled the original sketch. It refused to hang flat on the wall. One side was longer than the other. No one would mistake it for a factory-made quilt. And in the process of adding more and more stitches to this, uh, it occurred to her that the quilt was like a good marriage. 
we start out with a dream that we're going to make a better marriage than we suppose our parents had. And we sketch out our plans for our future. And as we estimate the amount of work it's going to take to fashion a quilt out of the uh, two lives, well, uh, we find ourselves uh, busily at work one day and realizing we've made some mistakes and we've caused some hurts. And our marriage quilt becomes flawed since it's quilted by two sinful people. And we get discouraged that all the pieces don't fit together the way we thought they would. Compromises and patching up have to take place. And the original design has to be altered or we'll give up and throw it all away. But if we persevere and allow God's grace to work us in us, the marriage quilt will turn into something beautiful that reflects the grace that God has poured out on it. The hurts and the wrongs may not be beautiful, but the love that shapes them into the larger design of God's work can turn them into pictures for the world to see the healing power of the gospel. Marriage was given in the Garden of Eden for two sinless people. Two people who didn't have any baggage from their families of origin, they didn't have any bad habits, who weren't trying to make uh, life work without God. And so it is that if you're a follower of Christ and want to live out this pattern, you need Jesus to be at the center of your marriage. He needs to be the third person in your uh, marriage. Because as disciples, we know that we are actually self-centered by nature and that at best we're people in process, that God's at work to free us uh, from all those things that keep us from being the people that he intended so that we might actually love another person selflessly. See, if you're married, God intends for you to grow up to grow into maturity in every way so that you resemble Christ. Jesus desires to meet you with the grace that you need so that you will accept one another completely and stop trying to change the other person you're married to. And you can do this because Christ himself has accepted you completely. You can give to the other person what you yourself have received. And you need Jesus so that you can forgive one another for the hurts that take place, because sometimes you will hurt the other person unintentionally, and sometimes you'll do it out of, well, spite. There'll just be some meanness rise up in you, and you'll strike back to wound. You need to be able to show supernatural forgiveness. And you need Jesus at the center of your marriage so that you can hear both the words of affirmation as well as words of correction from your spouse. Because it's only in the security of the unconditional love of God and the gift of the righteousness of Christ that you'll be free from the need to be defensive and critical or self-loathing in the midst of either affirmation or criticism. 
You need Jesus at the center so that you will grow in being able to love and serve that other person. When they're unappreciative, when they're selfish, when they're preoccupied, when they're distant, and when they're hiding. In other words, you need to learn how to love another person the way that Christ has loved his church, the way he's loved everyone who comes to him in faith, so that you can actually seek the best and the highest, God's very best for your spouse. And it's only in the active presence of Christ that together you can make the contribution uh, of serving together and impacting the world that God intends. God desires that every marriage become a garden that benefits others. If you're married, will you ask him to be a part, to be the center of your life? If you're married and you think you've done that, then just review what I've said. And ask yourself, am I really working that out? Is that really on display in the relationship I have? The Bible's vision of marriage goes beyond the human plane. It's beyond all those familiar and tangible things. It is God's purpose that marriage mirror his faithful love to a sinful people whom he has pursued and he's taken as his own. This is the created pattern, and it's the pattern that every Christian marriage is meant to mirror to the world. Let's pray. Gracious uh, Lord Jesus, give us, uh, give us a grace uh, to respond wholeheartedly to what you said to us. For those who are not married uh, and are your followers, a commitment uh, to follow out your pattern, not to enter into marriage without the intent of anything less than living it out. For those who are single and desire to be married, we ask that you'd answer their desires. And those who are confirmed in their singleness, we uh, pray that you uh, would not only fill their life with joy, but give them wisdom as they interact with their married friends. And gracious Lord, we pray for those who are married here, those who are in varying uh, degrees of living out what it means to be a Christ follower. And we pray, Father, that you would bless their marriage, that they would earnestly uh, seek you, and Lord, if they need help, that they would pursue it. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.